Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Army First Lieutenant John Fox. Fox was a Ford Observer, an artilleryman, Ford Observer serving with the 598th Field Artillery Battalion, part of the 92nd Infantry Division. And the action we're going to talk about is going to take place in northern Italy the day after Christmas, 1944. Now, the 92nd Infantry Division sounds just like any other division that fights in World War I and World War II, but it has had a designation meaning there is something different about this unit than, say, the 99th Infantry Division or the 1st Infantry Division. That designation was colored. This time in American military history, during World War II, black and white troops didn't fight side by side. They Units might be side by side, but black soldiers were segregated into their own units. And the 92nd Infantry Division, nicknamed the Buffalo Soldiers, was, I think, the, you know, the predominant unit of African-American soldiers. It wasn't just African-American soldiers that were, were treated in this manner. It was, um, we had the, the famous 442nd Regimental Combat Team made up of a lot of first or second generation Japanese Americans that were also segregated into their own units and also utilized in the Italian on the Italian front during World War II. We've talked about a few of those stories. But it's it's just interesting to think about. It's crazy to think about. It's if you look back, take a look at any of your favorite World War II movies, TV shows, pictures, you can watch the Marines storming the beach on Iwo Jima or or fighting desperately on Guadalcanal. You're not going to see any black soldiers, Marines, the occasional uh, black sailor. Then come over, watch, look at, look at footage of D-Day, the paratroopers, the Battle of the Bulge. You're again, not well, Battle of the Bulge is a bad example. There, uh, there were black units that were pulled up to, to help fight, but the, um, you know, D-Day and kind of the push across normally some of the most historic military conflicts in World War II. And you're just going to see a lot of white faces. That's, that's how it was. Um, now that, that would change throughout the war. And by the end of the war, well, after the end of the war, units would be desegregated. And the Korean War that would start just a few years after World War II would not have segregated units. Black and white soldiers would fight side by side. And one of the major reasons that that happened when it did, as opposed to happening later, is because of people like John Fox and units like the 92nd Infantry Division that, you know, for lack of better terms, proved themselves in combat and showed that whatever preconceived notions the country, the military, or other soldiers had about black soldiers, they were wrong. And they'd fight just as hard, if not harder, than any other American. So it's it's an interesting time to think about because the country is desperate for manpower. I mean, we, we, we didn't really run low on troops, but you know, we're drafting everybody we can yet somehow there were somehow we looked at, you know, black Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and, and kind of said, nah, 
you know, we're not there quite yet. It's that's not that long ago. And it's kind of crazy to think about. But nonetheless, if we move towards Italy in 1944, as a little bit of a background, Allied forces landed in Sicily in July of 1943 and began the Italian front, opened the Italian front. In September of that year, Allied forces would land on mainland Italy and begin pushing north. Remember, the reason that Italy is important is a couple reasons. It's essentially a compromise for coalition warfare. The Americans are anxious to get into the fight. The British, and they want to jump right across the English Channel and and hit Germany right on the Atlantic Wall and push straight through as the Soviet Union is pushing east to west towards Berlin. The British are a little more cautious and in retrospect um, probably had the right answer of we need to wait until we have overwhelming manpower and overwhelming resources to hit that Atlantic wall because we don't know if we'll ever get a second chance. So the compromise, if you will, was looking around the world. Germany had a pretty substantial empire at this point. Where can we start to attack Germany to gain some military experience for our soldiers that are not combat proven. You know, it's been 30 years since the last major conflict. Where can we test our equipment? Where can we test our tactics? And where can we start to tie up German units? Because we know we're going to hit, we're going to hit the Atlantic wall at some point. Don't know that it's going to be Normandy, but we know there's a big invasion coming. Where can we go to fight Germany to at least tie up their, some of their units in another capacity? Italy had the added benefit of potentially being a soft underbelly into Germany. So if U.S. and allied forces could take Italy, it was possible that they could move south to north into Germany. From Italy through, um, it would have been Switzerland and Austria, I guess Austria, because Switzerland was neutral, into Germany and you know eventually topple the Nazi regime there. So it was an, it was an why not try it is kind of the idea in 1943. And that's why there's forces landing in Sicily and then on the mainland. And they're pushing north. And eventually we have to have this, this move around the western side to land in, in, uh, in Anzio. We talked about that recently because allies get stuck moving up Italy. There are entrenched positions, impressive defensive line after defensive line. And by June of 1944, the allies take Rome. And that's considered, you know, this is a time in warfare where you take the the capital and the country falls is kind of the idea. It's not quite what happens in Italy because we're not necessarily fighting Italian forces the entire time. We are, but the main enemy that we're going to be fighting in Italy are going to be Germans. So the fall of Rome represents something to this group, but to another group, it's, you know, more or less just a city. Remember, they're trying to keep the allies out of Germany more than anything else. So the German troops will, will retreat slowly to Northern Italy, but losing Rome doesn't mean that Italy is necessarily lost to them. But on June 4th, 1944, Rome would fall to allied forces and they continue to push North into Northern Italy as winter approaches. Now, June of 1944 is also an important month because that's when Operation Overlord kicks off, the invasion of mainland Europe through Normandy. So much manpower and equipment and resources went into that invasion. And a few months later, 
the idea is hatched to, well, it's decided that there's going to be a second front open in France, in Southern France, named uh, Operation Dragoon. It's going to be another amphibious landing, another invasion of occupied France in the south of France rather than kind of the northwest of France where Normandy is located. To do that, units are pulled out of Italy in the summer of 44. So Dragoon would be in August 1944. As those units get pulled out of Italy, we have to reinforce the Italian front to continue pushing up into, ideally, pushing through Italy and, and into Germany eventually. One of the units that gets called upon to fill this gap in Italy is going to be the 92nd Infantry Division with 1st Lieutenant John Fox. So they continue to push north, and they run into really the last major defensive line known as the Gothic Line. And this is an area that, as, as allies look at it, probably not feasible to make much of an attack until spring. I mean, we're talking about pretty serious mountains here in northern Italy. So there's still a lot of fighting going on through the winter months, but not concerted allied offensives north to push through the Gothic line. On Christmas Day of 1944, Fox and his men are in an area uh, known as Soma Colonia, Soma Colonia, Italy. And it's, it's up near the Gothic line in, in the northern part of the country. And he and his men are really on the front lines of the Allied advance. And as they go to sleep on Christmas night, German troops begin infiltrating the city. The Germans are going to stage a counterattack in the morning to retake this town, retake this city. And they start moving troops into position Christmas night into the morning of December 26th, 1944. In the early morning hours of December 26th, the Germans launch their attack. And it's overwhelming. The, the number of Germans attacking is, is overwhelming compared to the American forces in the area. So John Fox, First Lieutenant John Fox, begins doing his job. His job is to, he's a forward observer. So he is the eyes of the field artillery. Now, looking back through history, a quick, short, <laughs> brief history of field artillery, for a long time, it was a direct fire weapon, meaning the artillery could only fire at what it could see. Think Civil War. The people standing behind the cannon would literally aim the cannon at a target and pull the, you know, pull the fuse and, and and send the uh, the cannonball downrange or the projectile downrange, and then they could see where it hits. And if it hit left, they'd shift right. And if it went high, they'd shift down. So the 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 gunners were watching their rounds. There wasn't as much need for somebody. What good is somebody forward telling you you missed your target? That came more into play during the First World War, where you would have degrees of observers pointing out where certain targets were and artillerymen would start to walk in their rounds. So they no longer as well, it, it was a natural evolution as artillery pieces started to fire further and further distances. So you can see 800 meters across the field, but what about 15 miles? You're not gonna be able to see that. So you have to have somebody to look and see where the round is impacting, or you're just firing blindly. Now, if you're trying to hit a city 15 miles away, fire blind all day. But most of these artillery pieces are aimed at something, whether it's a trench system in World War I 
or a German machine gun nest in World War II, you wanted somebody out there that could see where the round lands and send back corrections so the gunners and the fire direction center with the artillery can make their adjustments and become more accurate. That's John Fox's job as he sits in a second-story building in the Italian town of Summa Colonia waiting as the Germans begin their attack. So these aren't precision munitions, but Fox can kind of adjust as needed as the Germans are advancing forward. Before long, Allied forces, American forces, his unit, the 92nd, starts to pull out of town. They're they're going to be overrun. As they do so, Fox stays in his position on the second story of this building, a little observation area, and continues to call in these artillery strikes all across town. So he's raining down death and destruction on every German position he can find, exacting a heavy toll. I think at the end of the day, he's going to be credited with killing over 100 German soldiers just from his indirect fire calls. As the Germans get closer, he brings the fire in closer and closer. Now, these guns are miles away, and there's a risk of, as you get close, there's a, you know, a risk of error, probable error in each round. So just because the last round hit that street corner out there in front of you, if you say to fire the exact same thing again, it might miss by 30 yards. And that's like within reason, like that's, that's expected. So he's calling in these rounds closer and closer to where he gets to the point where he's calling him 60 yards from his position, right on top of himself. Now, a, a reasonable miss at that point will hit and kill his guys, he and his guys. But that's where the Germans are. So, and he's what he's doing is staying in his position, calling in fire to allow his unit to retreat, regroup, and stage for another attack down the road. So if he doesn't keep, if somebody or something doesn't keep the Germans at bay, they can pursue a retreating American force and potentially slaughter them. So what he's doing is a form of rear guard action. He's just doing it with his radio, as a forward observer does, raining down steel on the enemy. The Germans get closer and closer and closer. And next thing you know, they are all around his position. Now, when you are a forward observer, there's a few things you always send back to the gun line and you make sure they have. One of those things, sometimes arguably the most important, is your position. And you make it very, very, very clear. This is my position. And you update it as you're moving. It's no different than today in Iraq and Afghanistan. The forward observer out there on the front lines is calling the aircraft. They're calling the gun line. They're calling the mortar pit and telling them, here's where I am. Here's my location constantly. And the gun line, the people firing the rounds way far away, always notate that in a certain manner. Make sure those are friendly troops. We don't want to shoot that. So the gun line has Fox's position his outpost, if you will, his observation point. As the Germans get closer and closer and closer to his position, he no longer can bring down effective fire on them without hitting his his building. So he makes the decision at about 8 a.m. on the day after Christmas, 26th December, 1944, he calls back to the gun line and sends his location as the target. His commander intercepts the call, jumps on and says, negative, that's right on top of you. That's your, that's going to hit you. 
And his response was fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. Give them hell. The gun line fired, destroying more and more German soldiers, but killing Lieutenant Fox in the process. Which brings the question of if you're on the gun line and you get that call and you know what you're going to do, talk about a tough predicament. Fox knew what he was asking, but if you're the one back there on the gun line, do you load that round? You pull the trigger? You send that down range? I don't that's – t- that's a tough spot to be in. I mean, not to, not to take an ounce away from what Lieutenant Fox did, but think about the gunners for a second having to know that round they're loading right now is heading to an American position. That's tough. Lieutenant Fox would be awarded – would receive a Valor Award for his actions. That award would be the Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest award in the United States Army for bravery, for Valor on the battlefield. And it's a heck of an, heck of an award. There's not a lot of people that have received that throughout history. But why not the Medal of Honor? And that was a question that hung for a long time. In 1990, a panel was convened to identify in the, in the early nineties, I'm sorry, not 1990, in the early nineties, a panel was convened to identify, was there racial prejudice that prevented soldiers from receiving awards they should have received? And it, it seems like they did some good work. There's been a lot of folks that have received recognition after the fact, they didn't come out of this and say, yeah, one story. They came out with quite a few. Um, probably not as many as there were, because how many of these stories do we not know? Because the racial prejudice at the time meant that the citation was never even written. So you can't go back and take that information and upgrade it. But at least something came out of this, I guess, is what I'm what I'm getting at. In 1993, they... This, this group made their conclusions. There were quite a few instances where this was the case. Racial um, prejudice was in place, impacted how the, the event was seen or the citation was written. And in 1997, First Lieutenant John Fox, posthumously, would be awarded the Medal of Honor. It would be presented to his widow. Fox is one of only seven black soldiers in World War II to be awarded the Medal of Honor. And every one of those seven came out of either that panel or a panel like it, which means that zero were awarded before, you know, the mid-1990s. So that's tough. You know, how do you feel about that piece? Is it is it positive that we got back around to it, that we recognized an issue and and righted it? Can you write it? Is it righted? But I'd say heading in the right direction. And the bigger piece to me, first off, Fox and his family were able to be recognized for his valor and heroism. But the second big part that I mentioned earlier is because of people like Fox, because of these actions, these stories, and other units observing what they're doing, that impacted how segregation went away in the military shortly after World War II, which of course was the right move, a great move and would have been wonderful to see earlier, but 
it's 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 cool to see it's nice to see that people were able to recognize these acts and say we need those guys in our ranks without question let's go so first lieutenant john fox serving with the 92nd infantry division the buffalo soldiers will be awarded the medal of honor posthumously for actions on december 26 1944 in italy calling in an artillery strike on his own position in order to cover the retreat of his fellow soldiers. Heck of a story. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.